welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. The one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. Uh, today, I think you guys are going to get a lot of great insights around the world of data. And not just data from more the marketing operations function, but let's talk about lead lists and lead management as it relates to data. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that I am bombarded every week on LinkedIn or in my inbox by vendors who want to sell me lists. And I'm sure all of you tuned in, uh, especially if you're in marketing departments, you are suffering from the same uh, situation. So I invited on the program today good friend of mine, Mark Godley. Mark is the president of Lead Genius. And the reason I invited Mark on is not just because of his role at Lead Genius, but if you look up Mark's background, he has spent a long time in the lead database market. He is an advisor to several companies that you may or may not be familiar with, companies like Big Willow, ZenIQ, and uh, Zoom Info, which I imagine a lot of you know, and also was chief revenue officer over at HG Data. So he's been in the space a long time. He knows the data market very, very well. And I thought it'd be great to have him on the program so that we could demystify some of the data sources and really what's happening in the world of uh, data and lead management. So Mark, thanks for joining me on the program. How are you? David, thanks for having me. And you are located in, uh, is it Berkeley over in the East Bay? Uh, Lee Genius is in Berkeley. I live in a tiny little hamlet called Castro Valley, also in the East Bay. All right. Well, you're closer to me. I'm over in the East Bay. Our headquarters is in San Ramon, but I live in Danville. So uh, a good commute, Excellent. which is a rare thing in, in uh, no Silicon bridges. Valley. No bridges. No, no bridges. bridges. <laughs> what is your perspective on this whole explosion in, in data and everything happening around uh, what I think we're now starting to call the data stack? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's both both uh, a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, the blessing is uh, if you go back, you know, five or six years ago and you ask a B2B buyer in sales or marketing, um, you know, what data vendor relationship do they have, Sing, singular, not plural, you know, they'd give you a singular answer. Oh, we use data.com, we use ZoomInfo, we use Discover.org. And what's happened in the last five years is, you know, because we're all carrying around uh, computers, uh, usual, multi, usually multiple devices, um, the ability to get very granular as to who we are and what we do and why we're doing it has allowed specialty vendors to pop up that can augment the traditional data of name, email, phone with a lot more qualitative information. Um, and so that's the uh, blessing in that we can understand people, uh, their buying behaviors, their interests, much more intimately, the curse is because there's been an explosion of vendors, it's really hard to understand how you build that data stack in a, in a fashion that will allow you to create a, um, a meaningful go-to-market strategy. When people make the comment that it really doesn't matter, and I've heard this um, multiple times, especially even within the last year or two, more in the last year or two, that it doesn't matter who you buy your data from because everybody's getting data from the same sources. What's your perspective on that? I think, you know, there, there's some legitimacy to that uh, in that, um, you know, there's really, 
two major ways to build company or person data. Uh, one is to, and I'm talking from a vendor perspective, one is that vendor builds it themselves through web crawling methods or brute force labor methods, um, both of which are legitimate, or they license or aggregate it from third parties. So the challenge is when you're talking to a data vendor, one of the major things you should ask is how do you build your data? Um, because inevitably, if you follow the data back to the source, there are only a half dozen what I call wholesalers out there uh, that build their own th that build their data for resale to partners. So it's infuriating. Um, uh, oftentimes, when you have a retail vendor relationship, not knowing that you're actually buying vendors you have evalu you evaluated before and you know, you've ruled out because of, of poor quality. Now, the reason I say it's also, that that's the legitimate side of the answer. The, the side of that answer that, uh, or that uh, it doesn't matter who you're buying from, uh, that I don't think is, is, is valid is, there are some extremely sophisticated data vendors out there that only build proprietary data, and the only way to get it is through them. So the, the trick is, finding the subset of vendors that do that uh, and then essentially go for a low-cost commodity purchase uh, in the segments of data that are very much um, uh, ubiquitous across all other vendors, across any, any particular data vendor. If you were giving advice to yourself, let's say you were head of demand gen at a company and you're looking to do list buying, what advice would you give to yourself on how to vet vendors and what to look for? One I think I mentioned a minute ago, which is um, how you really go deeply on how they are building, uh, building their data. Um, number two, ask them, do they license any data that is blended into what they build? Um, number three, you've got to sample. You've got to sample before you buy. Um, and when you sample, I believe you should give them what I call the seeds of the sample. For instance, um, you know, not only is the data vendor very confusing, but there are a lot of gray market mystery meat vendors out there. And, you know, if, if you say send me a data sample, what you want to not fall victim to is them skimming, you know, the subset of their data, which is pristine and updated. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, by the time you do a buy, you find out, you know, their average data is quite atrophied. So what you want to do is, I, I mentioned this concept of seeds, when you get a data sample pre-purchase, you want to give them companies to add context to, um, or you want to give them companies to uh, or people to append emails to. If you can control uh, the subset of, of their data by pulling that off of, you know, six months of, of your last inbounds or um, have them do contact depends to, uh, to all your closed loss deals. So use a subset of data that is relevant to you as a buyer to make sure they can't uh, either inadvertently or quite uh, unethically, um, you know, kind of juice the results to make them look better than they are. Uh, those are the, some of the advice I would give you. That's good advice. Um, and then I would also say, I would also say, you know, don't go to necessarily a website for information. Um, if you, you know, you could almost go to any data vendor's website and um, you can you can swap in logos and it's all going to look the same. Talk to your peer group. 
talk to people you respect in the industry and get that first person referral. Uh, I think that's a wonderful way to buy data. The, um, the sourcing of data, you know, used to be the responsibility of, I would say, you know, particular role inside the marketing organization. What's interesting I find today in, in a day of full stack marketing is we are pulling in data, not just lead management data, like net new records for targeting or prospecting top of funnel type stuff, but we're pulling in data from all of our different MarTech tools at some level, whether it's digital body language data or whether it's uh, appending and enrichment data or we're using tools for normalization. So, you know, the the role of, I don't know if you want to call it a data scientist, but, you know, the role in marketing operations that is responsible for both data sourcing and data hygiene um, is certainly the Venn diagram is is a tremendous overlap, and sometimes we're seeing, you know, people designated to list buying and the top of funnel stuff, and then the marketing operations folks worrying about the martech stack. And I think it's going to be an increasing um, blending of these roles and responsibilities to make sure that what's coming in net new also fits in line with what is getting enriched and appended. I, I think that's a very astute comment, uh, Dave. I mean. You know, data buying used to be whoever manages a BDR, SDR team as the primary buyer. Then marketing automation showed up a couple of years ago, and the concept of lead nurturing above the funnel, um, you know, has become very prevalent. And so marketing has started to get a lot more influence. And, and this concept of marketing above the funnel, you mentioned digital buyer behavior, that, you know, there's some very, very interesting technologies from a digital advertising standpoint that will allow you to get your brand out. <clears throat> you know, to people that aren't even visiting your websites, whether it be ad targeting or retargeting and stuff like this. Um, it also, you know, there's a lot going on in the customer success area as well, um, where um, looking at, uh, you know, kind of the influence centers at companies uh, rather than just the credentialed users of your product is becoming very interesting. So the the, the need for accurate, relevant and comprehensive data across the entire buying center from pre-evaluation, uh, unknown uh, prospects, all the way to a traditional sales funnel, all the way through upsell, cross-sell, and just renewal. Uh, you know, it has become the purview of data-centric uh, organizations to the point that, you know, you mentioned data operations, I'm sorry, sales operations and marketing operations. I think the concept of data operations that spans that entire uh, spectrum is going to become much more the norm in the, in the years to come. I was just going to go there. Once again, proof that great minds think alike. And what I was going to say <laughs> is that, you know, well, we're an echo chamber, one or the other. <laughs> maybe. But, you know, for folks listening in on the radio program, when you hear me hesitate around saying the data scientist role or marketing operations role, let me unpack why I'm hesitating in that is that. We have been doing, DemandGen has been doing a lot of advisory services for our enterprise clients around their marketing organizational structure, um, global marketing teams, regional marketing teams, because the department is involving so much. And my hesitation is that new roles, new titles are emerging regularly now. And I think it was a former Demand Gen Radio uh, program where I talked about event operations, that event marketing is such a big piece of the marketing responsibility from a lead gen and customer engagement perspective that event operations, because there's so many different MarTech tools now involved in events from mobile and the, the SaaS applications and all the event infrastructure and the list management, et cetera, that, you know, think about that title. Uh, 
you know, blank operations, marketing operations, event operations, data operations as potentially roles that you can now redefine the responsibilities within your with your org. Ironically enough, we are looking for a uh, new head of HR, and the company that we're using that has been uh, giving us prospects, um, it's people operations. I don't know if you've ever heard that uh, term before, Mark, yeah, but I had sure. not. And so, I, you know, we're seeing it outside of marketing as well. Good, good, good type of broad title that that needs you know well defined responsibilities underneath it. All right, let's get back to demand generation, lead gen. So. You know, as as president of the company, you've helped uh, startups raise money. You've gone through the life cycles of different firms. What what does demand generation look like at various stages from from your from a president's perspective? Yeah, I um, you know, I, I was bitten by the startup bug about ten years ago. It might have been cheaper for me to do something, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, to to do some illicit substances rather than uh, this adrenaline rush. <laughs> but but um, I, I have been very fortunate to be part of uh, pre-revenue organizations, actually raising money for them. I've been a part of being brought in by venture capitalists to companies that on their first institutional round, um, I've been brought in to companies uh, post B that were needing to um, kind of pivot a little bit. So I've seen the full spectrum and, and I'm happy to say I've had mostly uh, besides very exciting roles, positive outcomes. I've been a part of some stuff that, you know, some folks that have run out of money. So I've seen the downsides of startup. But going back to your question, what's interesting to me is the concept of demand generation from what I've seen really uh, does change and can be quite dramatically different in each one of those phases. And it just to oversimplify it for a minute, you know, pre-revenue, maybe seed round funding, you're, you, you have a concept, you have something on a whiteboard, and you're trying to see if people will spend money for it. Um, and, and, you know, I'm an incrementalist. Um, you know, in my pre-kids, I used to climb a lot of mountains. Uh, I still do a little bit of that these days. But the reason I bring that up is when you're climbing a mountain, uh, you can't think about the summit, you know, when you've got a couple days of approach, when you've got weather coming in, when you've got, you know, an immediate uh, risk in front of you. And so I'm an incrementalist. Um, get through the next hazard and then think about and, and then once you're successfully through that, figure out the next one. That served me very well in the, in the uh, startup world because it's very similar. When you're trying to do demand gen uh, pre-revenue, it really is about what I've seen, marquee logos. You know, get some logos that are early adopters that you can use as your pitch to get to that institutional funding round. When you get to the institutional funding round, It's more about um, product market fit and expanding into your target market. So it might be less about the three or four marquee logos that everyone knows and about the replicatable process uh, uh, and getting, you know, uh, more mid-market or a plethora of logos as opposed to uh, going deeper with three or four and then when you get to a B round and everyone's looking for that elusive hockey stick that would get you on that unicorn status growth, um, at that point, then it's really about uh, expansion and replicatable processes. So the point is, demand gen may look very different. Uh, demand gen up front may be about whale hunting uh, when you're pre-revenue and you may need some, some folks with Rolodexes who can, who, you know, who, who can you know, get to some friendlies and, and, and get some logos in the door. Then it's about starting a process, a couple early stage BDRs who understand that you may be testing 
pitches, touching, uh, testing concepts, looking for the initial phases of, of a broad market approach. And then once you get that, it's, it's again, then getting to that A or B round funding. And then at that point, it's probably about mass expansion. And do you have the, the systems in place, the sales tech stack, the, the training and onboarding of reps so that you can go from two to three BDRs to 10 to 20, and obviously same thing on quota carriers, uh, and have the management in place that, that can do that. So the reason I, I think this is somewhat important is, you know, interestingly enough, I see more uh, staff changes in the uh, demand gen roles of startup companies than necessarily in the leadership. Um, you know, people say, you tell me, Dave, what's the average uh, you know, tenure of a CMO these days? It's it's expanded. It's it's longer than it was, you know, the eighteen to twenty two months uh, previously, which is good to see. But your your point that's is definitely news. spot on. And then that's because let's let's face it. I mean, when I started the company, the whole mission of the company is making marketing heroes. That's not an overnight overnight venture. What's different today in the CMO world is that there's a whole bunch of marketing infrastructure and a whole bunch of change management. So if you get the right CMO leader who has a vision of not just the art of marketing and brand and PR and all of the things that that a, a great CMO is phenomenal at, the smart CMOs know how to align sales and marketing and build out marketing into a machine. And and the investment and duration in doing that is a lot longer uh, you know, employment life cycle than it was in the past. Right. And so what I see back to demand generation roles is I see the tenure uh, pre-B round being very, very short. Um, just because companies are testing, they're going with marketing-based demand generation, then they're shifting over to phone-based demand generation with reps, and they're moving you know, with inside reps, then they're, move, then, then they're testing fields. So there's so much iteration before you actually solve the riddle for your particular product and your particular segment. I really don't see a lot of tenure in those roles till post B uh, and or C or D. Um, so, you know, for those people listening who want a career in startups, just know that that's what you're getting yourself into. And it can be exciting. The good news is it's an incredibly vibrant space where you can go and from one company to the next a couple times uh, before you actually hit, hit, hit your own career fit with a particular company. Yeah. Now you bring, you bring up some really good topics for maybe some other uh, podcasts. And it, it is just as you talked about demand generation looking different and company life cycles, which I'm going to come back to the type of CMO, the type of marketing leadership you need at different stages of the journey is certainly different as well. When I was listening to you describe, and I was picturing this bell curve um, spot on, right? When you get a company off the ground, what matters most day one is marquee logos and revenue. And what made me think uh, when you were describing that is the natural path to ABM, right? In a small startup company where sales and marketing probably literally sit offices right next to each other and are very, um, you know, closely, close relationship and, and closely working together because they're both marching to the same beat of trying to get those first customers and get their products out the door. Then somewhere along the journey as you grow, and it's the B and C and larger rounds where you're doing more mass marketing and you've increased the sales, that's where maybe those department and functions drift apart and spray and pray marketing 
and random acts of sales, you know, the 80-20 rule, that 80% of your revenue will come from 20% of your salespeople. So you can get a little sloppy in, in sales leadership and sales management as you grow. And then, you know, as companies need to get to that next level of inflection, they bring in more ABM approaches and get back to whale hunting and targeted marketing and bring in a different type of sales leadership and, and sales team that's going to take them to the next level. So it make, makes a lot of sense. Um, before we get to the tail end of the program, uh, since you are still relatively new to the Lead Genius team, Mark, what, what changes are you bringing about there? And, you know, I don't know how many people know you guys, so if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute or two and explaining Lead Genius's business, because you guys are a very different, um, you know, data sourcing model, lead gen model than, than a traditional data provider. So maybe start there, but talk about, you know, how you're shifting and shaping the organization. Be great. Yeah, um, so Lead Genius, um, uh, I think, is building a SaaS hybrid data service. Uh, talk about jargon, that was a mouthful. Yeah. Um, that I think is the future of where the, where the data relationships are going. This concept of multiple layers, um, having someone manage those relationships uh, if on behalf of a particular client and provide additional data on top of third-party data um, uh, is where we're going. What our real IP is, um, I come from a very data science AI background, uh, and that certainly is a core element of what we have. But what we really have is we have a community of 400 researchers they're not legally employees just because they happen to be spread out over 40 countries on the planet. And we build custom data that is not easily available through the marquee names. Um, and then we manage those marquee names uh, on behalf of our clients. Um, it, which actually, what I just said is relevant to your question, Dave, because you said, what have I been doing? One of the mistakes I think Lead, uh, uh, Lead Genius made is they've been riding the coattails uh, or their marketing, their messaging has been riding the coattails uh, uh, of the more common buzzwords you, we've been hearing for the last couple of years, whether it be predictive, whether it be analytics, or whether it be ABM, like all of these panaceas that are going to set us free from, from our, our, um, our, our troubles. And so Lead Genius has largely been jumping on those bandwagons um, and I think what that's, what that's in, by the way, I think other, this is not just uniquely genius. Um, I think all of the MarTech, sales tech, ad tech, data tech companies are doing a disservice to our buyers by not being concise and concrete about what we do and how we're different. Uh, and what that's resulted in is not only are you getting bombarded, as you mentioned when you opened up this conversation, but it's, it takes too much time to figure out what is the real value of, you know, name your vendor. And so not only are buyers overwhelmed, but they're frustrated and confused. Going back to what I'm doing here in the last four months, I'm trying to internally get all of us aligned as to what is our differentiation? How do we complement other vendors in the, in the data stack? Where do we compete and where do, when we compete, what do we do better? Um, what do we not do? And once in getting that all clarified across our employees, our clients, our investors, our board, 
And then how does that manifest itself into what, into what we should be telling the marketplace? So I'm not quite through the six to nine month journey it's going to take me to get everyone aligned. I'm testing messaging with some of my most trusted advisors who have bought for me in other capacities. Um, I'm asking their advice as to um, what are they seeing out there in the marketplace. And so I think this concept of alignment across stakeholders is what I'm spending time on. Yeah. Number two, clarifying message uh, is also very critical. And then being respectful to buyers to try to help them cut through the clutter. Well, I appreciate you taking us through that. I mean, a lot of people who are doing, I got a reach out on LinkedIn the other day. Someone said, who do you know and recommend for a provider in the public sector area? And so knowing that there's a lead genius out there that can help you know, enrich a database or source additional information for either very specialized verticals or other areas. Good to know that you are, you know, evolving the business. And Mark, great to reconnect and chat about this topic. I mean, we all need to fill our databases and target the right people. And it's, um, it is, it's daunting. I'm just going to close on one thought, which is I can't wait till we start having conferences again where people demo products. And I don't mean in the exhibit area, (laughs) but, you know, I, I grew up, you know, in Silicon Valley, I remember when I worked at Microsoft, we used to have a conference called Demo, and it was just a conference where you, like TED Talks, you watched 20 minutes of a technology demonstration, and you walked away with a day full of new tech that you could see. And even though the internet has brought so much of that forward and available to us, um, I like a format where I can actually see the product. Not a huge fan of PowerPoint. Just show me the product and don't hide it behind a case study. I could go on. Time for a different program. But Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining me today and, and uh, sharing your perspectives. Much appreciated. And I hope you wrap up uh, the year strongly and, and have a good holiday season. But thanks for coming on the program. I've appreciated the dialogue, and I'm sure we'll have much more of it. All right, Mark. And to everyone else, thank you, and have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll reconnect on the next program. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing.